think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. Coming live to you this week, well, live for us, not you, uh, <laughs> from Toronto, Canada. We're both here. We're in the cold zone in this Airbnb together, recording this podcast in the most awkward way possible. In a basement, finally, literally. This is the real Magnificast basement. We got all the way to Rodre's basement. Uh, Let me just kind of set the stage for you uh, all listening. There's probably going to be some weird ambient noise in here. This is not kind of the best place to record a podcast. Um, The walls are sort of brown. There's some, some cheap definitely from target art on the walls dean has a blanket around his shoulders and we're just we're in the zone we're in the room you're in the room with us it's a real shawl it's a very like i look pretty fragile i think (laughs) like you're a sick old man who needs some soup exactly (laughs) and i maybe i do i don't know uh let's see my child is about 20 feet away from us sleeping in a room so this will be very good lots of good dreams (laughs) yeah for sure Uh, cool. So we've been can oh Dean Dean's always in Canada, but yeah. I've been in Canada for a few days with my wife and my child, and we've done some fun stuff. We went to the aquarium. We saw the fish. Saw all of God's good creation. <laughs> some of the bad creation too. <laughs> some of the real rough rough creations. I wish God wouldn't have made jellyfish. <laughs> I disagree. I mean, they're really cool, but it's like, what's up? Why are they here? Yeah, well, that's true. Those, those big huge groupers. Oh, those groupers are very big boys. Can't get those out of my head. Nope. I saw a turtle. <laughs> a few. A few even. Yeah. Peacefully living with the sharks. It was a real, uh, well, it would have been a good vision of the kingdom if it weren't for the fact that we paid way too much money to go there. That's right. There was a lot of money involved. <laughs> but the sharks and the turtle, they swam together. The turtle is Catan. The turtle lay down with the shark, just like it says in the Bible. <laughs> just like it says in the Dave Ramsey Bible. <laughs> uh, speaking of Dave Ramsey, if you guys have been on Twitter this week, you know that he has some very good opinions that he's been tweeting out. As per usual. As per usual. Uh, Dave Ramsey's really well known for just being like that good finance guy that's going to help you dig your way out of debt. Uh, this week he had a really good take, and on Twitter he said this, If you do rich people stuff, eventually you'll be rich. If you do poor people stuff, you'll eventually be poor. <laughs> it's really simple. It's, that's, the, that's the immoral science of Dave Ramseyism. <laughs> it's a really good formula. Yeah, so um, we thought since Dave... Uh, we're, uh, he and I are on a first name basis, by the way. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, Dave, he offered us this really great gift. Uh, we thought we would take this gift 
unwrap it and we would do some uh, more socialism 101 <laughs> kind of riffing off of last week. So we decided we would just talk through Dave's uh, Dave's good tweet um, and figure out how rich people actually get rich anyways. Um, do rich people just do rich stuff? What's rich stuff anyways? What's poor people stuff? <laughs> Are we doing the wrong stuff? I mean, I've heard that rich people... One one thing that is definitely rich people stuff is recording a podcast in a basement. Yeah, tonight, rich people so do that constantly. We're on the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly yeah. true. Uh, what I love about this tweet, though, okay, we dunked on it, a bunch of other people dunked on it, rightly so. It's something that you ought to dunk on. It's a dumb thing to say, but... Uh, the part about rich people is kind of true, I think, and that's the hot take that we've got for you this week. Uh, if you do rich people stuff, you will get rich. The trouble is, uh, rich people stuff, actually horrible. Yeah, I think what Dave Ramsey has in mind is, like, save all your pennies and work really hard, but rich people stuff is not that. No, it isn't. It's actually stealing wages from other people. Yeah, that's right. And I also appreciate um, the latter half of the uh, formula. If you do poor people stuff, eventually it'll be poor. Because I just really like imagining like billionaires uh, getting together and drinking at bars and like having a good time. And yeah. All of a sudden, they don't have any money. Uh, billionaires getting together and buying tons of scratch-off tickets and then becoming very poor because of it. Yeah, that's right. I love that idea. Yeah. Dave's good, good tweet gives us the opportunity to talk about something in uh, socialism and Marxist theory called primitive accumulation. Um, It's basically the real way rich people get rich and poor people get poor and stay poor. Um, But before we get into primitive accumulation, we're going to talk about the things that Dave Ramsey thinks (laughs) rich people do to get rich. Dave Ramsey and Dave Ramsey adjacents. Yeah. Um, most of these things that we've, we found on the internet are, uh, unsourced and reposted a lot in the Dave Ramsey blogosphere. The Dave Ramsey verse, if you will. (laughs) I will, thank you. (laughs) Okay, so I think what we're gonna do is, maybe we can just trade back and forth the things that people do to become rich. Yeah, yeah. Um, mine are backed up by statistics, because rich people, uh, what it takes to be rich is to do social science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. Yeah. Uh, unsourced statistics, specifically. <laughs> yeah, they definitely came from somewhere real. Yeah, so Matt found a good list. Um, he's going to give a few there. Um, I also found a list by Googling for literally two seconds before we sat down here. Uh, it's not backed by statistics or even by any other sources except for uh, the name on this blog, which I won't read because uh, probably a huge nerd. But uh, in any case, I'll read you some more intuitive advice. We could put it that way. There we go. Good. Okay, so here's the first uh, social science-backed take um, about statistics. So here it is. Um, 70% of wealthy people eat less than 300 junk food calories per day, whereas 97% of poor people eat more than 300 junk food calories per day. <laughs> so if you want to be rich, you got to eat them vegetables. You, you, gotta. you don't eat Cheetos. Never. You don't eat your egos. No. No egos. Not one ego. Not even one. You got to eat. Maybe one. Junk. I don't know how many junk food calories are in an egg. I think that one ego is probably less than 300 calories. That's probably true. If you don't put syrup on it. You can have one ego a day and be rich. <laughs> That's pretty good. It's the good life, in fact. I hate this because, I mean, I hate it for a lot of reasons, yeah. but it's just like, well, also people who are less wealthy probably can't afford not to always eat junk food either. Yeah, absolutely. Or like, like high me- caloric diets are not uh, super healthy. Yeah, exactly. And also like, who is... <laughs> Who has time when you're working all day? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, I also love it because it is patently false, for sure. There's yeah. no way. No, no way. No way at all. So many rich people eat garbage, and that's something that I believe, but also, uh, well, I probably shouldn't say how I know it, but let's just say, I know a few rich people, they eat a lot of ice cream. You are what you eat. Ice cream. 
<laughs> Me too. That's <laughs> <laughs> what we have. That's the one thing I have in common with rich people. <laughs> okay, what's yours? Um, out of the number of intuitive tips on here, uh, my favorite one so far, I'm going to start out strong, is uh, every day, avoid death. Yeah. Uh, Solid idea. <laughs> you will stay rich, I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> it goes on to clarify, it means uh, avoid things you know are bad for you. Be a little bit healthier each day. You can't get rich from a hospital bed or a grave. Mm. You can, however, get rich by owning hospital beds. You can do that. How horrible is that? Or And graves. <laughs> Whereas we'll discover later in this episode, if you got a, a rich grandpa and he dies, then you've gotten very rich. <laughs> you from can a hospital get rich bed. from someone else's hospital bed and great, but never your own. <laughs> That's right. So quality advice. I think this one check. <laughs> check that one. That one makes sense. Okay, how about this one? Um, <clears throat> I need to put my sociology voice on for a second. <laughs> yeah, seventy-six percent of wealthy people <laughs> exercise aerobically. Four days a week, whereas 23% of poor people do this. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, you gotta go to the gym. <laughs> you gotta get buff, and then you'll get rich. <laughs> well, not even buff, just like, you gotta strengthen your core, you gotta work on your, your things that are gonna keep your heart healthy. Right, right, aerobics, aerobics, aerodynamics. Exactly. <laughs> That's why so many rich men are bald. <laughs> That's right. It really <laughs> helps them in that aerobic, <laughs> aerobic time in the gym. Yeah. That's a joke, but also, I mean, I think, uh, I know lots of, like, bike dads, uh, which, by, <laughs> which I mean, like, dads with a, a large disposable income, and they spend that money on bikes. Yeah. Which is fine, I guess. Yeah. But anyways, they, like, shave their legs and then go faster. Yeah, well, there you go. Bike dads. Nothing wrong with that. You gotta be smooth and fast. Keep the money flown in. <laughs> the rich get richer. The bike dads get bikier. <laughs> okay, let's, one more. One, maybe yeah, one more yeah. for each of us. All right, oh, boy, one more. How to choose. All right, I'm gonna pick this one. Number four, write down ten ideas a day. I've written this a million times. Watch the movie Limitless. Bradley Cooper takes a pill that turns him into a superman of a brain power. Writing down ten days, ten ideas a day is that pill. Try it for six months and you'll see. <laughs> I love that they, they say Limitless here. <laughs> it's a really good source. The, the movie where Bradley Cooper has to take drugs to become incredibly smart. Actually, pretty good analogy for rich people. <laughs> I think There's so. a lot of cocaine flowing. That's, that checks out. <laughs> okay, how about this one? Yeah. Sixty-three percent of wealthy parents make their children read two or more nonfiction books a month, <laughs> versus only three percent of poor people. Oh, no. <laughs> Dad, I don't want to read this Dave Ramsey book. Dad, I hate this nonfiction. <laughs> I hate this quality nonfiction. <laughs> Dad, I don't want to read this book about entrepreneurship. <laughs> I love this because the quality of reading. It makes no difference here. No, just uh, books. Yeah. All just, books are actually the same. Yeah. That's exactly. how you know you've read them. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. Um, also, like, probably I do believe the statistic that only 3% of poor people will force their children to read nonfiction <laughs> books. Because that that's not going to happen. Let's be honest. Uh, all right. Let me find this last one. Uh, oh, boy. There's so many good ones. Um, gosh. All right, I'll, I'll go with this one. This is a big one. It's kind of a meta category, if you will. Uh, the last tip on here, if you want to be rich, is love. And it's defined in several categories. Uh, is it agape, or is it eros, or what? <laughs> yeah, somewhat like that. Um, point A. If it's someone I don't know, I pretend like they're going to die tomorrow. <laughs> so I treat them with the love that we treat someone who will not exist anymore. <laughs> 
I love that really disposable love. Yeah, like, that, that's the virtuous character of wealth. <laughs> it actually makes a lot of sense if rich people just think of other people as like going to die tomorrow. <laughs> I love you so much that I'm not going to pay you on time. Well, because like you're probably going to die tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> so like you know. That's just how cares? much I love you. Who cares about like your paycheck? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Here's B. If it's someone I don't like, I treat them the way a mother treats her child. I wish for their best, no matter what my personal feelings are. Yeah, also it makes a lot of sense that rich people are infantilizing other people constantly. <laughs> yep, it's true. Uh, the last two are, C, if it's someone I love but is not making me happy, I sincerely wish them the best for their future. And D, if it's someone I love, I listen, I help, and I surprise. <laughs> Here's a new bike! <laughs> it's my old bike, really. <laughs> I wasted all your money on stocks! <laughs> Love you. I was going to buy you this great present, but I bought you stocks <laughs> And now we're going to get richer. <laughs> oh, by the way, here's a real surprise, though. It's, <laughs> it's Dave Ramsey's memoirs. <laughs> oh, no. You have to read it, by the uh, way. That... <laughs> <You're> son. <laughs> You'll be giving this book report as a presentation to your mom and I? <laughs> yeah, so there you go. Uh, those are some ways that you can think of like a rich person and become a rich person. That's all you gotta do. Just those those quick, easy steps right there. That's it. That's all. Yeah, well, um, but how do you really get rich, though? Yeah, that's the good Marxist question of the week. Mm, materially speaking. Materially speaking. What, um, what books do you read to become rich? <laughs> you read Capital, but you are not morally transformed by it. Apparently. That's right. You yeah. read Capital, and then you're thinking, like, this guy's got some good ideas. <laughs> yeah, these are some good strategies. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's talk about them. So, primitive accumulation, that's something Matt mentioned earlier. We have talked about it on the show in the past a few times, kind of tangentially. We brought it up in an episode we did on the diggers, uh, getting diggy with it. Still one of my favorite uh, titles I'm most proud of. Um, but we are going to revisit it here because it's actually a really cool way, I think, of understanding what really lies at the heart of wealth. Um, and surprise, it isn't character development. <laughs> or at least if it is, it's like. Developing bad character. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, okay, so I think that primitive accumulation probably has some some deeper roots in economic theory. Um, David Harvey and Marx both cite uh, Adam Smith as sort of like the starting point for this idea right. of primitive accumulation. And uh, Adam Smith, if you don't know who he is, sort of a classical economist, the the author of the idea of capitalism, kind of. The uh, invisible hand guy. Yeah, the invisible hand guy. Uh, so basically, Adam Smith was like, hmm, how do people get rich in the first place? How do people get poor in the first place? Really great question. Let me tell you. Some people work really hard and some people don't. Mm -hmm. Next question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Typical Dave Ramsey. <laughs> exactly. Adam Smith and Dave Ramsey are, might be the same person. <laughs> they might be. They've got the same blog. That's the book that you, you have to get people to read Wealth of Nations. <laughs> <laughs> That's my new flat earth theory. <laughs> Adam Smith has been just uh, siphoning the lifeblood of, uh, of young workers and now he's Dave Ramsey. He has a portrait somewhere in his <laughs> of Dave Ramsey. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love actually starting with Smith there because Marx talks about the um, the kind of like imagined beginnings of capitalism that Smith offers with a really wild analogy to the way that Christians talk about original sin. Um, and he Marx gets a little bit playful with the analogy, so it's not completely consistent, but the way that he plays with it is really fun. So I'm going to read a kind of long passage, but it's a good one, then we can break it down. So this comes from Marx's Capital, uh, Volume 1. It's a really long book about how capital works. And he says this. This primitive accumulation plays in political economy about the same part as original sin in theology. Adam bit the apple, and thereupon sin fell upon the human race. 
Its origin is supposed to be explained when it's told as an anecdote of the past. In times long gone, uh, long gone by, there were two sorts of people. One, the diligent, intelligent, and above all frugal elite. The other, lazy rascals spending their substance and more in riotous living. The legend of theological original sin tells us certainly how humans came to be condemned to eat this bread and sweat of their brow. But the history of economic original sin reveals to us that there are people to whom this is by no means essential. I love that. We'll get back to that. (laughs) Never mind, says Marx. (laughs) Quick aside. Thus it came to pass that the former sort accumulated wealth, and the latter sort had at last nothing to sell except their own skins. And from this original sin dates the poverty of the great majority that, despite all its labor, has up to now nothing to sell but itself. And the wealth of the few that increases constantly, although they have long ceased to work. Such insipid childishness is every day preached to us in the defense of property. By Dave Ramsey. By Dave Ramsey. Uh, it's a joke. <laughs> By Dave Ramsey is my new amen. <laughs> <laughs> and Dave Ramsey also with you. <laughs> uh, it's such a wild take in so many ways. I just, just that. Um, I mean, Mark's referencing Adam Smith about how the poor are just rascals. Yeah, yeah. It um, actually resonates a lot with like the statistics that we were in, like the dumb other stuff we read that kind of goes right. along with it, right? That poor people are like, they're smart. They're like, they have the right habits to get them to the right place, right? Mm-hmm. But poor people, they have bad habits. And if they were like less <laughs> rascals and less like, just like dumb and stuff, they wouldn't be so poor. Um, there's one of the statistics I didn't read that was just about like what amount of poor people gamble versus what mm-hmm. amount of mm-hmm. rich people gamble. And I think it's really telling that like, you know, well, poor people, they just want to get rich quick. They don't want to have to work for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, they want the reward without the, the sweat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dude, it's dumb. Yeah. It's so bad. It's super dumb. It's like, I don't know. If you think of people as just like these like discreet, rational actors that if they just did the right things... Like then they would be rich. It is like the most weird thing to believe. Yeah. It is it is just as weird as thinking about like flat Earth or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just like this weird view of the world that right. does not correspond to reality. It doesn't take into yeah. consideration any of the actual evidence in the world. It just is a weird way to look at people. Yeah, I think what also is cool about this is the way Marx frames it is like uh, this is a thing that's supposed to happen in the past, and it's a kind of mythological past in the same way that original sin is a mythological way that humans have tried to explain the predicament that they're in now, uh, or the, at least the situation. And so to kind of locate this capitalist myth back there, too, is like, you know, well, once upon a time, there was, like, some people who worked really hard and some people who didn't work very hard, and, like, this is how it shook out, and that's why we are the way we are today. And Marx says, you know, you should call bullshit on that because it's not a true story. It's a, a childish story, as he puts it. It's fable. Um, the thing I love the most about that, though, and I said I would return to this, is that <laughs> when Marx brings up original sin the second time, it's not as a, uh, you know, foolish myth or whatever. Um, he says that uh, the legend of theological sin tells us how humans came to be condemned to eat eat the bread and eat, uh, by the sweat of their brow, but the history of economic original sin reveals to us that there are people to whom this bite is by no means essential. And I love it because it's like, original sin, whatever its faults, at least like everybody's in the same boat. <laughs> but like, economic original sin just like denies the, uh, the truth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> The challenge of the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> good, good Marxist hermeneutics. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Marxist, he's 
Good guy. He's smart. He knows <laughs> what he's talking about. Yeah. So I guess uh, all that to say, I think this is a good way to kind of kick off the conversation because it puts Dave Ramsey's idea here, which is common. I mean, it's not just unique to him. Um, it's common, like, to your, you know, parents when you talk to, when you, like, go home for holidays or whatever. Um, this is sort of like a, a presumed natural way that the world works. It's always worked this way since capitalism began, and it's always going to work this way. So naturally, if you don't work hard, you don't get money. And that's just how it is. Yeah, it's probably one of the most pervasive ideas that um, liberals bring up against socialism, though. Well, right. you're just not working hard enough. Right, exactly. Like, what, you want things for free? Yeah. No, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, what does Marx think instead? Yeah, so instead, Marx thinks this. The transformation of scattered private property arising from individual labor into capitalist private property is naturally a process incomparably more protracted, violent, and difficult than the transformation of capitalistic private property already practically resting on socialized production into socialized property. In the former case, we had the expropriation of the mass of the people by a few usurpers. In the later, we have the expropriation of a few usurpers by the mass of the people. So there's maybe a, a step before this quote, actually, that we should talk about a little bit. So um, we'll come back to this in a second, but we'll, uh, just to kind of at least make this quote make sense since we just read it. What Marx is trying to do is contrast the idea that um, the expropriation of capital by capitalism is somehow uh, less violent than the future expropriation of property by socialism. So Marx is making this kind of uh, comparison, you know, two ways of taking property. And the link to make between what we were just saying and here is that Marx doesn't think that capitalism arises out of a natural state of affairs or a really simple story of like two people who meet in the field and one person works more and the other person works less. Instead, he thinks that there's actually a violent root at the heart of capitalism. So Marx tells a whole kind of history in Capital where uh, he says, you know, w once upon a time, if you want to put it in the Marxist sort of fable, uh, there were domains in society that were actually public or not owned by merchants or even necessarily by like states or churches. They were just sort of like commons and people did all kinds of stuff on them. Uh, different countries did it differently, whatever. Um, but the point being, once upon a time, these were not privately owned in any real meaningful sense. And then one day, some dastardly capitalists came along and they decided that that should be theirs, uh, that they should have a private claim to the land that's publicly used. And as a result, they over time expropriated it violently and then uh, that violence continues via law. So one story he tells is in England where uh, there were all these sort of common fields where people would come and hang out and eventually over time some wealthy elite said that that's what they wanted so they started building what are called enclosures these uh sort of you know big uh more or less fences to cordon off different parts of the commons and say this part is mine now and it was met with resistance and then that resistance was put down by police and then eventually that process of uh inclusion or um, enclosure was written into law, so it became a legally enforceable act. And what that meant is what was once common was slowly uh, taken over by private interests, and there's this kind of violent root at the heart of, of how people got property in the first place, how people got rich. Um, I think that's a really way, or a really interesting way of kind of retelling the story, that like, it isn't just the case that like, there were some hardworking people and some non-hardworking people, it's the case that there were some people who were willing to kick other people off of the land that they needed to survive, and then there were some other people who got kicked off their land. Yeah, and I think what's really important, too, about that, like, bit of primitive accumulation 
is that, okay, so you tell someone, okay, hi, I'm a socialist, I think uh, property should be held in common by the workers, etc. Um, they'd be like, well, you know, how would you do that? How would you get property from the capitalists? And it's like, well, I guess, you know, it depends on how the capitalists are feeling that day, you know, if they want to hand it over democratically or something, that's chill. But otherwise, there has to be some type of, like, you know, violent revolution like there right. usually is. And um, people get kind of antsy and weird about that because it's like, well, a violent revolution, that sounds terrible. You want to, you want to use violence to take something from somebody else. Why, why are you trying to take my, my land, my cows, my right. whatever, right? That I earned by hard work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the problem is that the I earned it by hard work is only possible because of this, like, you know, very violent route. So, like, you know, what's, what's more violent? Like, a revolution that lasts a short amount of time or, like, an ongoing capitalist revolution where... Um, publicly owned or commonly owned things are slowly expropriated from the people that own them. Right. And like, listen, it's capitalism. It's more violent. <laughs> I'm here to tell you the good news. <laughs> yeah, or the bad news, depending yeah. on who you are. Whichever. <laughs> yeah, um, I guess like, we'll we'll move on to some more like moving parts uh, involved in all this, but the point is to say, you know, think of sort of the phrase itself, primitive accumulation. How did, did capitalists accumulate stuff when capitalism was still young, was still primitive, not yet developed. And the the key to understand here is that it's not through morally developed char- character, um, it's through the the decision on the part of some people to stake a claim and enforce it. Um, and, by extension, uh, the put-down resistance to that. Yeah, totally. Well, okay, so we've got, we've got some layers of fables going right. on here. we got Adam Smith's fable of just, like, you know, some people work hard and some people don't. Yeah. And then we got Marx um, talking about primitive accumulation. But um, while Marx is, I think, way more correct and less of a fable, there's still some parts of the story that he's leaving out. Some right. really important parts of the story. Um, at least at least two that we're going to talk about, or maybe three, but mostly two. Um, the Marx kind of, like, maybe ignores, or maybe it's beyond his capacity, or, you know, maybe the patriarchy is too strong, but Marx ignores... Um, the ways women's labor were, were particularly expropriated in this, like, very different gendered way than just, like, you know, workers in a factory right. or something. Um, so we talked about, uh, we've talked about Federici a handful of times on this podcast, but Sylvia Federici is this Italian sort of autonomous Marxist kind of um, person, and she's written a lot about primitive accumulation. It's actually probably, like, one of, like, the central ideas to her entire work. Right. She's always kind of coming back to it again and again. There are two ways that primitive accumulation show up in her work. Historically, with the regards to, like, witches, and this whole thing about uh, the appropriation of women's bodies through um, the, like, religious hierarchy and social hierarchy that came along with, like, squashing witches in medieval Europe, which is a really wild idea and very interesting. Relevant for Christianity and capitalism. Yeah, absolutely, because, you know, witch hunts were an explicitly Christian thing. Right. Um, And also through the figure of the housewife. That was kind of like a part of maybe more of her, like, activist side of her life. Um, She wrote these um, essays called Wages for Housework that were uh, linked to a correspondingly named uh, institution in Italy during the sort of autonomia kind of stuff in Mm -hmm. the 70s. Um, but anyways, uh, this is what uh, Federici says about Marx and primitive accumulation. It's not unkind or anything. She's just kind of pointing out a blind spot. So Federici says, however, my analysis departs from Marx in two particular ways. Whereas Marx examines primitive accumulation from the viewpoint of the waged male proletariat and the development of the commodity production, I examine it from the viewpoint of the changes it introduced in the social position of women and the production of labor power. So this is uh, Federici's intervention into Marx, like, yep, 
workers have it bad, but also um, don't forget about the ways women were specifically, like how women's labor was specifically appropriated from them. Right. So moving right along then on that same idea from uh, her essay called Wages for Housework, she says this, it is important to recognize that when we speak of housework, we are not speaking of a job as other jobs, but we're speaking of the most pervasive manipulation, the most subtle and mystified violence that capitalism has ever perpetrated against any section of the working class. True, under capitalism, every worker is manipulated and exploited, and his or her relation to capital is totally mystified. Okay, so Federici is doing this thing here where she is talking about the ways women have to work under capital in this very gender-specific way that we would just call like being a housewife. Um, and it doesn't... And what's really bad about this type of like social formation and housework is that it doesn't pay women for all this work that they do. And throughout the essay, she has a lot of really, I think, very provocative points about how housework is actually like this... I mean, not only is it free labor, but it's also a type of, like, psychic kind of, like, labor, too, and kind of torture in, in a lot of ways. Um, but what is so pervasive about it and what's, like, how it's, like, you know, mystifies their labor is that capital makes um, uh, housework, a very specific type of labor, synonymous with being of a specific gender, being a woman. So to be a woman is to do housework, and not only just to do housework, but to also like, like doing housework, like taking care of the kids, like doing laundry, like making dinner, all these kinds of things. Um, so it has this, like, um, it mystifies their labor in that it, it covers over it with this, like, veneer of social expectation. Um, and that's a type of primitive accumulation. Women's work is not valued in the ways that men men's work is. Yeah, exactly. And I think this also kind of helps us understand uh, some, like, I guess you could call the creative side of capitalism, uh, right? Because this is something we talked about with Adam Kotzko a little while back in the Neoliberalism Stevens episode. Um, it isn't the case that, like, capitalism just kind of finds things that are hanging around in the world and tries to, like, turn them into... Um, like, it doesn't try to just, like, profit off of them. It creates its own versions of different things that are kind of hanging out in society. So, like, with respect to women and gender, it's not that there aren't, like, pre-capitalist antecedents to these kinds of things, of course, which Federici is, like, very keen to explain. Yep. Um, but it's the case that capitalism uh, also kind of adds these extra sort of elements to create a new understanding of what it means to be a woman or man or family under capitalism. Uh, I think that's, like, a really powerful point. Um, it's one that Marx and Engels talk about uh, kind of as, like, ideas. Like, it's on the radar, uh, but Federici just, like, puts such a point on it and, like shows that, you know, there are ways that they just couldn't probably even phenomenologically understand the very phenomena that uh, they might have hinted toward or opened the door for or something like that. Yeah, I think so. If you've never read Federici's Wages for Housework, you should go do it. It's out there on the internet. Just Google it. Also, uh, uh, Brett on Rip Off Radio had Sylvie Federici yeah. on that once. That was really crazy. She was, like, really, really kind in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Talking about how great Nebraska must be. I love yeah. that. I know, me too. <laughs> It's not. <laughs> I mean, it's fine, but it's not great. Uh, yeah, so, okay, uh, capitalism uh, accumulates the labor that women do through the mystification of um, what it means to do labor, even. And that is kind of the point of primitive accumulation. It's a way that it, it creates capital without even you understanding that's creating capital. It's also so wild, too, because, I mean, think about all of this, all of the work that women do that is, like, you know, domestic labor 
but uh, is actually a huge contribution towards a capitalist society, right? Like, try to do capitalism if you can't have someone actually taking care of kids and, like, producing workers for the future. Like, right. surprise, you can't. <laughs> yeah. It's like, um, it's, a, it's a primitive accumulation on this, like, really basic level of social production that I think right. probably should think about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is also why it's part and parcel of so many socialist and communist movements to say specifically, you know, uh, after the revolution, house care or housework isn't going to be left up to one gender. Like, that's in, like, the party program of the Communist Party of Canada, oh, for really? example. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, like, something that's important to thinking about how to get rid of capitalism. In, the, in their agenda, is, it, is there any talk about wages for housework, or is it just, like... Well, you have to share the work or something. <laughs> uh, I'd have to look at it again to get it specifically right, right but there's a enough. number of sort of really interesting sort of uh, uh, attempts to tackle the problem of gender and capitalism specifically. Yeah. Um, oh, good. Yeah. I think, too, tying this back to the Dave Ramsey thing, right? Like, we're not just talking about this because Federici is a cool person who, like, says some cool stuff. She is, though. She, for sure. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> but... Uh, to sort of link it with this theme of, like, if you want to be rich, think like a rich person. Mm -hmm. Well, like, that's exactly what Federici is kind of pointing out, is, like, the way in which rich people under capitalism think about gender relationships. I mean, naturally, like, a lot of stuff has sort of morphed and mutated under capitalism with respect to gender and everything else. Uh, but it's a really important way to sort of fixate on, like, uh, oh, if you want to be rich then here's how you do it. And Dave Ramsey himself obviously has a pretty gendered understanding of the world uh, who like maps completely onto what Federici is saying, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, okay, before we move on to something else, though, let's talk about witches really quick. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, love, I love a good witch. Yo, last week, <laughs> we had all those weird Reddit questions about spells and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think we need to talk about witches for a second. Yeah, sure. Yeah, cool. So uh, Federici has this other book that's called Caliban and the Witch, and also a new book that's called... Uh, witches and witch hunters and something else. It's a shorter, it's a shorter like abridged yeah. version of Calvin and the Witch. You can find it. Just Google Sylvie Federici's name. <laughs> it, it's on a table across the room. And look, I'm not going to get up. Neither of us are. This is a very delicate podcast situation right now. Everything, everything is literally hanging here by a string. I feel like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> One false move and it's audio poison. Yeah, it's all audio poison, but more so. Um, okay, well, so in Calvin and the Witch, uh, Federici says this. Witch hunting, this is completely changing gears in, like, the most wild way. Okay, anyways, the overview of the book is about primitive accumulation, but in, like, medieval society, and about how women's bodies were, like, you know, they went from definitely sort of, like, dominated by a patriarchy, but, but, but like, you know, to a strongly policed type of patriarchy that is enforced um, not only by law, but also spiritually by the church. Right. So it's this huge societal transformation that she's kind of recognizing in this, like, weird transition from feudalism to capitalism. Um, it's a great book, by the way, and it's actually way more about feudalism than you thought, and feudalism is, like, also a super really... Fascinating. Yeah, super fascinating. It's, like, just a whole bunch of things going on. Anyways, so this is what she says about witches. God, this is a wild twist. I should have thought of a... No, it's better not to have any transition. <laughs> Witch hunting was also instrumental to the construction of a new patriarchal order where women's bodies, their labor, their sexual and reproductive powers were placed under the control of the state and transformed into economic resources. This means that the witch hunters were less interested in the punishment of any specific transgression than in the elimination of generalized forms of female behavior, which they no longer tolerated and had to be made abominable in the eyes of the population. Okay, so if you don't know anything about witches, in the 14th century, <laughs> this wild thing happened. Um, the There were these, like, these Catholic priests. Uh, I think one of them, if not both of them, got uh, expelled from the Catholic Church in one way or another. 
um, but they wrote this book called the called the Hammer of the Witches. It has a really fancy Latin name, but I <laughs> yeah. can't remember at the moment. Um, it's fine. Anyways, the Hammer of the Witches. It's a handbook about how to identify witches and how to like um, force them to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all kinds of really interesting things written about this book. Um, lots of things in media theory. Lots of things in like cultural studies and cultural anthropology. Um, but basically, uh, the idea is it's just like, this is how you interrogate people. This is how you interrogate women and like make them and like test to see if they are, um, a witch. And like, when you kind of get into some of that content, what you find is really interesting. Like some of the jokes from like Monty Python about witches floating in water are actually real things. Um, and it makes them weirder. (laughs) I don't know. Those Monty Python boys. Uh, they knew a little bit about history. Research. Yeah, I guess so. They did. They read a book. <laughs> Not this one, clearly. <laughs> um, but they read some books. Okay. That's a different podcast episode. Um, but anyways, it's really interesting because it's a way, like, you know, um, the branding women as witches deterred them from certain types of, like, social behavior that might have pointed towards, you know, like the autonomy of women's bodies or uh, the autonomy of women's spiritual practices or something like that. Um, and it took it and said, like, no, you can't do any of these things. And it, um, it unleashed a type of persecution upon women uh, that policed everything they did and um, made sure they kind of fell into line within the patriarchal order. So there's, like, you know, the housewife stuff that's happening in Federici's uh, kind of like more activist essays all is backed up in this, like, really large historical project that she comes around to later. Um, but primitive accumulation is at the foot of both of those things. Like, you can't really understand one without the other. Yeah, and actually, I mean, you, you're saying here, like, uh, there's not, like, a clear transition or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the the reason this is especially fascinating for, hopefully, Christian people on the left in particular is that, like, Christianity is at the heart of what Federici is talking about, right? Yeah. Like, you don't get the primitive accumulation uh, with respect to women in Europe without a certain kind of Christianity. Um, certain, like, weird moves made on the part of Christians to uh, aid and abet the creation right. of capitalism through the creation of witches and, and gender. Right. I mean, the hammer of the witches is, like, Christianity. It's a right. bludgeon used right. against them. Yeah, exactly. It's, exactly. A, it's a technology to make people conform to a certain specific, like, gender performance. Yeah, exactly. And, like, as Christians committed to the dismantling of capitalism, you also have to be committed to the dismantling of certain forms of Christianity. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I don't know. There there's are such direct lines between these things and like even like contemporary evangelical purity culture. Yeah. It's like, you know, crazy. Yeah, and not only that, even like political rhetoric, right? Like uh well, even Adam Katzko talks about Sylvia Federici in yeah. the Demon's book and uh he connects it to like the figure of the welfare queen. It's kind of like an analogous figure, you know, she has these sort of magical powers in society to like ruin the Reaganite dream of uh, an American like hard working uh working class or whatever. So Yeah. Yeah. We should do more on that book sometime. Yeah, okay. Calvin, Calvin the Witch, though, and yeah. talk about some of like the like the fetal and medieval stuff. Maybe in October. Maybe. A very spooky month. Yeah. A month about witches. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's transition, though, to another aspect of all the stuff, the primitive accumulation stuff. So you mentioned Mark says this one blind spot that Federici is trying to really fill out so that we can see. I think there's another one. Uh, with respect to race as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's not to say that Marx and Engels didn't say anything about race or slavery in particular. They had lots of things to say about it. Some of it was really bad, actually. But some of it was like, genuinely interesting um, and useful. But 
in recent years, like a number of critical race theorists have sort of been pointing out the huge distance between the way that Marx views the uh, sort of emergence of, of capitalism and by extension the emergence of wage labor and how that relates to the creation of a certain kind of slavery under capitalism as well, racialized slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's really important to draw that out, not just to say like, oh, Marx missed a thing that, you know, is like analytically significant, but it's also important because we still are living with like what some people call the afterlife of slavery, right? Um, that's a, a term that gets picked up in like Afro pessimism, which a lot of people see as somewhat antithetical to Marxism. I don't really personally think it has to be that way, uh, and I think they help us see some of these uh, blind spots. You know, they help us to extend uh, and hopefully radicalize or further radicalize what's going on in Marx against sort of capitalism in general. So, with respect to primitive accumulation. We were talking earlier about how it has to do with enclosure in one case, right? Like taking what's commonly sort of experienced by people and then making it private. Uh, And then we sort of switch gears to talking about gender and how there's a whole way of understanding women uh, that gets sort of worked into how they have an originary kind of exploitation, right? And I think there's a really, really obvious way of tying those two things together when it comes to race. Uh, on the one hand, you have the the literal like, transformation of human beings into property in slavery, and at the same time, you also have the racialization of people under slavery and then continued under capitalism that is, you know, built on that. Um, so I think there's a number of ways to talk about it. We could probably get into a lot of critical theory, but there's not, I don't know, that you can get down like a whole rabbit hole. Um, but actually, Matt, when I was mentioning this earlier, uh, you talked about like actually a really cool passage in uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates that maybe we should read first. Yeah, I think so. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, just like you said, it could definitely be a rabbit hole of things. Yeah. Like, not only, is this, not only does this apply to slavery, but also applies to colonialism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, course. you know, the appropriation yeah. of, of, like, you know, okay, like in England with the enclosures, it's the appropriation of land of, like, a lower class. But with regards to slavery, it's, the you know, the appropriation of other people's bodies, you know, forcefully. And also with colonialism, it's the appropriation of someone else's land and the enclosure upon it, too. So, like, right. you know, all these things are tied. And uh, I, I don't know. Uh, there are blind spots and marks for better, I mean, just... You know, it's, Mark should have said some things about it, but sometimes yeah. people can't say things. And yeah. other people do. It's how discourse works, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways, yeah, um, all this made me, like, as soon as I thought about sort of, like, this aspect of um, primitive accumulation, I thought someone who's actually profoundly un-Marxist, which is kind of a bummer, <laughs> but Ta-Nehisi Coates with this really cool article for The Atlantic a few years ago. It's called The Case for Reparations, and it's a really powerful article, even though he's not a Marxist himself. You know, it's it's fine. He's got a lot of like Marxist sympathies, yeah, Marxist tinged ideas. Yeah, I mean he's yeah. de- he's definitely a liberal, but like he wrote a good article. So what yeah. can you, what can you do? <laughs> um, so in Ta-Nehisi Coates' uh, article, "The Case for Reparations," it's actually a really interesting uh, piece rhetorically. It's like first of all, it's it's pretty huge. It's long. It'll take a little bit of time to read, um, but if you've ever read it, you definitely should. It's fun in a weird way. Fun to it's, it's fun like to read. Very well written. In uh, addition to being like genuinely interesting, it's one of those nonfiction pieces that you should make a child read. <laughs> yeah, or your dad. Yeah, or your dad for sure. <laughs> dad, listen, if you want to be rich, you have to read this article. So, anyways, the whole point of the article that Coates is laying out is kind of this like these historical sort of vignettes that um, that are laying out what he calls uh, maybe like the kleptocratic logic of uh, Jim Crow. And also, like the post Jim, the new Jim Crow years, even mm-hmm. um, this these times when um, specifically, like a real specific type of like anti-black racism 
um, was enacted upon black people in the United States to steal their property or like pay them extremely little for their property mm-hmm. or steal votes from them or mm-hmm. you know everything else. So um, this is what Coates said. Uh, he says, in the 1920s, Jim Crow Mississippi was, in all facets of society, a kleptocracy. The state's regime partnered robbery of the franchise with robbery of the purse. Many of Mississippi's black farmers lived in debt peonage under the sway of the cotton kings, who were at once their landlords, their employers, and their primary merchants. So um, this is how the this is how the article starts talking about Mississippi. Um, but the article uh, continues on to talk about redlining in Chicago. Mm-hmm. It goes on to talk about um, Wells Fargo uh, like targeting black churches for uh, predatory loans, mm-hmm. right? So he's laying out this giant sort of scale. I mean, I like the, I like the word kleptocracy. It makes a lot yeah. of sense. This giant scale case for why the United States is based upon this type of kleptocracy where uh, property is, I mean, black people are, star- are targeted for robbery over and over again by legitimate, you know, kind of means. Um, I think it's really important. And then, and then you get to the end and it's, it's just like, well, th- why is it called the case for reparations? It's like, oh, because, because black people have been stolen from systematically yeah, yeah. for such a long time. It's not even about like, you get the feeling that when you read it, it's not even about like racial justice. It's about just paying people for what they're owed. You know, it's right. not like, um, there's a part, uh, in it too, where he says, you know, um, uh, reparations isn't just about, um, like paying people but it's also like the starting point for the entire transformation of society and i think that makes sense right it's a place it's like the the bare minimum thing that um you know you have to do to to make something right with somebody it's like just pay them back to Mm -hmm. begin with and then from there you can start everything else Mm -hmm. yeah for sure yeah and i think it's important too to see that with all the primitive accumulation stuff as well um but even more i think to look back at this sort of dave ramsey logic that we're following right that to think like a rich person or to be a rich person you got to think like one in the west like that means basically thinking about like huh how could we take advantage of these people yeah exactly yeah i mean who who's more rich than the people that own wells fargo yeah right (laughs) think like a rich person think about how you can like wring every last penny out of like the black church or something oh my god yeah I can't think of anything more demonic. <laughs> or something, like, anything more that, you know, especially like Christian lefties should be extremely pissed about. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so we've been talking about how uh, there's all kinds of good Marxist reasons to think that Dave Ramsey's tweet is really bad. But let's talk about some Christian reasons to think that his tweet is really bad, because Dave Ramsey is also a Christian. Super Christian. Google <laughs> Dave Ramsey Christian, and the first thing that you'll see is his... Uh, is his testimony. So you know it's real. So you know it's definitely real. You've got a good authority. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, all right. If you want to be rich, you got to think like the rich. If you want to be, if you if you think like the poor, you're going to be poor. I mean, that's verbatim, right? That's exactly <laughs> what he tweeted. That's exactly what he tweeted. <laughs> Typos and all. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. So here's what the Bible says, though. But what the Bible says. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's exactly what's going on here. We're channeling our inner pastor. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, we've talked about this passage before in the show, too, but James 5, I think, is one of the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also keeps up the theme of the problematic thinking of rich people. So, James 5 says this, um, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and the rust will be evidence against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. So this is obviously written in a pre-capitalist time. Point to be made, I guess. Yep. <laughs> that being said, <laughs> this logic uh, extends into capitalism completely, I think. Uh, the logic being that one way that these people stay rich is precisely by cheating their workers um, by fraud, not paying their wages. Uh, and that is the originary violence, right? There's been nothing done to the rich people to warrant that kind of behavior. Um, and as a result, God's going to bring that justice at the end. Um, I think it's just like a really good passage to kind of keep throwing in the face of people who think that rich people are automatically good or that being good leads to being rich because the Bible is pretty unequivocal that that is not the case. Yeah, I think it's actually a really important thing to reiterate that point as much as possible that like being a good Christian doesn't mean financial stability or whatever, whatever, whatever Joel Osteen nonsense is uh, <laughs> going on. Uh, still got, still that, doing that hashtag Joel Nostein. <laughs> that's messed up my life. Uh, because I mean, that's the way that a lot of Christians think about it. I think that's the way that Dave Ramsey thinks about it too. Yeah, or at for least, sure. I mean, to a certain, how... in a, it, there's a, there's a kinship there. Yeah, I think so. Right. That if you're a good person, you think like a rich person and also Jesus is in your life or whatever, you're going to have a really great life and things are going to be chill. Yeah. No bad things will ever befall you, especially right. financially. <laughs> you guys, you just got to have the right amount of envelopes. And the right amount of money in them, and the right mindset, <laughs> and you can't fail, but that is completely not what the Bible tells you. Yeah, and not only that, it's just not what the Bible tells you about the rich. Like, the Bible doesn't say that if you think like a rich person, you'll be a rich person. Uh, when the Bible talks about rich people, by and large, it basically is talking about them in order to say, hey, why are you doing this? Or saying, like... Um, you've got your treasure now and like it's gonna all go <laughs> yeah. away yeah exactly if you think like a rich person you're gonna be in trouble <laughs> yeah <no>, exactly <laughs> yeah cool um okay so james 5 is good but also i mean we come back to the same bible verses over and over and yeah. reaffirm ourselves probably because we don't read it often enough. <laughs> yeah that's probably true <laughs> Uh, but also, I mean, like, the rich young ruler is another good example of right. uh, the ways that Jesus specifically is telling someone not to think like a rich person. Right. Okay, so the rich young ruler goes to Jesus and says, I'm paraphrasing, by the way. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> this is the, the Matt Bernica translation. <laughs> That's right. Uh, like, listen, I follow all the rules in the, in the old, in the Torah. Like, what do I have to do to be perfect and obtain eternal life or something? That sounds right. I think that's what he says. Yeah. Who knows? It's impossible. There's no way to find it's out. It's just this oral culture we live in. Yeah, I mean, I, I did commit that James 5 passage to memory, but... <laughs> right, and then Jesus, Jesus says, like, well, if you want to be perfect, like your father in heaven, which is definitely in there. That one's in there. You gotta, you gotta give away all your money, or give away all your possessions and give the money to the poor. Sell your possessions, give the money to the poor. It's actually what it says. Yeah, okay. it says all that. Jesus is kind of like trying to figure out the best way to put it. Okay, you should do something with all of your things, is what Jesus comes <laughs> Wait, wait, I've, I've got a better way of putting it. But, it <laughs> but it's like, it's an important idea that like, that's how we actually read the Bible because, well, first of all, it's what it actually says. Yeah. But also it's like, Jesus isn't like, oh, rich young ruler. Just keep being yourself. How'd you get that way, actually? Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's not like, I mean, it, if if uh, the rich young ruler wasn't actually the rich young ruler, and it was actually just like some like regular person that worked in the fields or whatever, mm -hmm. whose wages were withheld from them, it's not like Jesus would be like, well, just think like this guy over here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. uh, so like, what you gotta do is you gotta get lots of envelopes, yeah. you gotta put your money in them every week, you gotta budget well, don't buy things you can't afford, don't even have a credit card, <laughs> is what Jesus would probably tell you. Yeah. Yeah, I love also, um, like, 
What does Jesus think about economics? Well, I don't know. If you have, like, two fish, maybe you have a thousand fish. <laughs> or, like, uh, if you show up late to work, uh, you're going to get paid exactly the same amount yeah. as somebody else who's also there on time. <laughs> yeah, or, like, if you're worried about paying your taxes, just go find a fish. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's the kind of thing that, like, if you think, if you think, like, Jesus, you're not thinking, like, a rich person. You're thinking, like, yeah. a magical person. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but, definitely not, but definitely not, like, a financially stable person. That yeah, is no, definitely no. the case. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest thing here is, like, in capitalism, under capitalism right now, if you really think like Jesus, you will ruin your life. Yeah, I think that's completely true. Yeah. That's, I guess, like, the Stanley Hauerwas kind of point. Yeah, I mean, but it also, all faults. <laughs> but also, like, the every other kind of more radical Christian sure, point, sure. too. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, the real sort of Marxist combination, I think, with that is, like, it doesn't have to be a simplistic, like, binary between, well, this is the ruling order that it is, and you're either kind of in it, or you're thinking like Jesus and you've ruined your life within the kind of shell of capitalism. There's, like, maybe some more ways we can think about how to extend the political logic of what Jesus is after. Yeah. Um, Which I think is, like, probably the biggest challenge for Christian Marxists in particular, and Christian anarchists to a, a lesser, but by no means less meaningful extent um trying to draw that line from like how do you uh how do you actually build a political vision that's beyond just like well i read the bible and this is what it says yeah exactly right because um i mean marxism says a lot of things that christianity doesn't right but i think you can see some of those ideas as natural extensions and some of them as you know not but yeah still i think it's uh Christianity is an interesting hermeneutic to read Marxism through, and vice versa, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it just helps to dispel some of those myths about, I don't know, capitalism that Dave Ramsey is getting. Because, I mean, he doesn't recognize this, but he's reading the Bible through a certain economic lens, right? On purpose or not. Um, And it's leading him to some weird conclusions. And, I don't know, it's not like you should just repeat that kind of ignorant translation or whatever, but just recognize that there's no kind of pure access. Yeah, it's also like there's this really weird version of karma at play, too, in these right. things. Like, you know, if you are if you think like a good person, then like, or sorry, if you think like a rich person, like, good things will come to you, right? Yeah. Or, you know, if you do, if you, if you engage in the habits of rich people, then, of course, you'll reap the rewards or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that's like a profoundly unchristian idea. Well, not it's that, weird because... Not- well, go ahead. Well, not that, like, karma is, like, all bad. Yeah, sure. <laughs> like, as, like, sort or of... Or that like, there's only one kind of karma. Yeah, yeah. exactly, totally. But, yeah. like, this specific kind, yeah. the capitalist <laughs> kind, is dumb. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Um, I mean, the the hardest part for Christians, I think, is that you can actually find this logic in the Bible in a few places, yeah. especially in Proverbs, right? Like, yep, rich people just get rich. Wicked people, they get poor. That's what they deserve. Right. Um, but also in the same book, in Proverbs, like, there are some lamentations about how, like, wait a second... I'm like a pretty good guy, and it turns out I'm not rich. What am I doing wrong? Yeah. Like, God, what's up? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, the Bible deconstructs its own kind of simplistic logic about mm-hmm. uh, how economics gets distributed. Yeah, exactly. If you read all, you know, the entirety of the po- Proverbs or something, you see, yeah. like, different things happening. Yeah, and then you get to Ecclesiastes, and it's like, oh, dang, all this is messed up. It doesn't matter, <laughs> as it turns out. Yeah. Ah, oh, dang, all this is messed up is the, the Dean Dallow translation of the beginning of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> what if there was, like, an audiobook of you, like, reading the Ecclesiastes, but, like, in your translation? Yeah. Oh, dang, all is, all is just really messed up over here. Everything is just, like, Netflix and chilling. <laughs> Useless. Useless, and I don't even remember what happened in The Office Season 7. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, Dave Ramsey... Sorry to report. 
you got the official Magnificat stamp of being wrong from the basement. The first ever judgment delivered from the Magnificat basement. <laughs> insert, insert gavel sound effect. Yep. He's bad. Dave Ramsey got it. Thanks for listening to Magnificast. If you like what you heard in this episode, and you probably didn't, <laughs> you can go support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Magnificast. You can also follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash Magnificast. You can retweet our episodes. That would be really cool. That would be, be great of you um, to do that. You can also even go to iTunes and give us some iTunes reviews. We'd really appreciate that. Or Google Play or Stitcher. I don't care. Any place where you see our podcast pop up, go and give us a review there because we'll probably read them. Or maybe we won't. Who knows? If they're bad, we won't. Yeah, if they're bad, we definitely won't. But they won't be. They will be good, though. Yeah. We... And we definitely will. We trust you <laughs> to make the right choice. Cool. Uh, the intro music is by Amari Armstrong, who has uh, got a cool new job. Hey. Hey, congrats. you did it. <laughs> or they did it. They hired a very cool person. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> they succeeded. Congrats to them. The only good thing to happen in higher ed ever. <laughs> Thanks to The Logical Spoon for the outro music. You guys probably did it, too. Yeah, for sure. See you next time. Church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord.